I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about the Vietnam War, a traumatic and difficult time in American history, its importance in American history, and its enduring significance for American life. I'm joined today in our conversation by an old friend of the Ashbrook Center, um, a great friend of the Ashbrook Center, Professor David Krugler. David is Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin at Platteville. He also is uh, a wonderful faculty member for Ashbrook in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. And David actually travels around the country doing teaching American history seminars also for Ashbrook. We know him as a great teacher. Many of his students out there, some of whom may be listening to this, have had the wonderful experience of having David as their teacher. He's also a terrific historian, terrific scholar, and I didn't know this until just recently, but also a novelist. Uh, David, you've written two novels at least now on uh, World War II th thrillers, really. Yes, yes, two World War II spy thrillers about uh, Soviet espionage and the American atomic bomb project and uh, the adventures of a Office of Naval Intelligence uh, second lieutenant to stop them. And I love the titles. One novel's called The Dead Don't Bleed, and the other is Rip the Angels from Heaven. Great titles. Let me recommend both of those wonderful novels to our listeners. David, thanks so much for joining us today on The American Idea. It's a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for inviting me. Um, to get us started, the Vietnam War. Um, it's probably fresh in the minds of at least some of our listeners who were alive and lived through that time in American life. Take us back, though, to the historical context of the situation that America finds itself in, maybe even before the beginning of actual hostilities in Vietnam. We can begin in World War II, and we think about the position of the United States after its contribution to an Allied victory. It's the undisputed world power, and many nations are looking to the United States uh, to build a post-world order in which democracy and freedom can thrive. Many colonized peoples and nations are looking for their freedom. Among them, the Vietnamese, who have been under French colonial control for decades, dating back to the late 19th century. Under the leadership of a man named Ho Chi Minh, many Vietnamese, especially those in the north, are seeking to overthrow the French. We would think that this goal is consistent with overall American aims in the post-war era to be a leader in a light for freedom. But the problem for the United States is that Ho Chi Minh is a dedicated communist, and it presents the United States with a choice. Should it support self-determination if that advances communism, 
or should it choose to support a colonial European power in its bid to hang on to its colony? Uh -huh. It chooses the latter, and it chooses to support the French in what we call the First Indochina War. Ultimately, the French lose, but the United States commit themselves to the southern half of Vietnam, which emerges in the aftermath of that war due to something known as the Geneva um, Convention, um, the uh, Geneva Resolutions, which set up a divided Vietnam. From that point forward, 1954, the United States is committed to an independent, non-communist South Vietnam, but it struggles to build a functioning democracy in South Vietnam. All the while, the communists in the north and their allies in the south are seeking to unify Vietnam under their communist rule. Okay, so the United States has this very significant geopolitical um, dilemma, problem, as you're, as you're laying it out there very nicely for us. Um, a lot of us think of the beginning of American involvement in the military conflict in Vietnam as starting with the Gulf of Tonkin incident and the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. You said, of course, that South Vietnam is established more or less in 1954. The years go by, the late 50s and early 60s. How do we get to the point of the Gulf of Tonkin incident? What is that incident? What happens and what comes out of it? Sure. For many years, the United States supports the first leader of South Vietnam, a man named Ngo Dinh Diem. But the United States, especially by the time Kennedy is president, is frustrated with Diem's rule. He is corrupt, he is inattentive to the people, and he's increasingly engaged in repressive measures to hang on mm. to power. This is not the way to build a democracy. Late in Kennedy's term, the United States supports a coup against Diem, and he's removed, and generals come in charge for a brief time. So we have political instability in South Vietnam. During the same time, the South Vietnamese military is struggling to contain a growing communist insurgency. Mm. All the way back in 1961, the secretaries of state and defense deliver a report to Kennedy in which they say the United States must be prepared to introduce its own military forces in order to enable South Vietnam to defend itself. And I bring this up before getting directly into the Gulf of Tonkin incident because we need to understand that there's already this mindset that the U.S. has to be prepared to introduce its own combat forces. Uh -huh. The incident in the Gulf of Tonkin, which is off the coast of North Vietnam, occurs in the late summer of 1964. Secretly, the United States Navy was supporting covert commando operations carried out by the South Viet Vietnamese military against North Vietnamese targets. The North Vietnamese knew these commando raids were taking place. They were stopping them. They also knew the United States was providing communications and intelligence support, primarily through two U.S. warships located in the Gulf of Tonkin. Uh -huh. These ships were in international waters, though the North Vietnamese claimed they were actually in their territorial waters. The purpose of the Maddox, as one ship was known, and the Turner Joy, the other, was to let the North Vietnamese know the U.S. was serious about supporting South Vietnam. The North Vietnamese responded in kind, and they deliberately attacked the Maddox in early August 1964 okay. to let the United States know we're willing to use force as well. So you have a situation where... Um, probably unbeknownst, am I right to say this, unbeknownst to Congress or certainly the broader public, America has these two warships right off the coast that are supplying, as you say, aid and assistance to South Vietnamese commandos. Correct. 
And this is significant because a few days later, Lyndon Johnson delivers a special address to Congress. Of course, it's televised and broadcast to the American people, in which he asks for the authority to pursue and use all necessary measures to achieve U.S. aims in Southeast Asia. We might think of this as a blank check for the president as commander-in-chief to wage war without an official declaration of war. If Congress grants him this resolution, there will be no need for a declaration of war. President Johnson deliberately and conspicuously did not mention the commando raids. To oh, really? do so, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So this is a a. a um, so what did the Johnson administration say happened? They say that North Vietnam deliberately attacked the Maddox, which is true in a very limited sense. But if you don't know that the commando raids are taking place then you think, aha, the North Vietnamese are being these aggressive communists as we're accustomed to thinking about. They were responding to the U.S.'s actions to support South Vietnamese military action on North Vietnamese soil. This wasn't in the international waters, though that's where the U.S. ships were. The actions themselves occurred on North Vietnamese territory. So how did this deliberate wording by the Johnson administration affect the congressional resolution that came out of the speech? Tremendously. The vote in the House was unanimous, not a single dissenting vote. In the Senate, there were two dissenting votes, from Democratic Senator Ernst Gruning of Alaska and Senator Wayne Morse of Oregon. And I want to take a brief moment to note that Wayne Morse occupies a unique position in American political history. He's the only U.S. Senator to be both a Democrat, a Republican, and an Independent. So we're talking about a guy here who's an iconoclast, and he smelled something fishy about Gulf of Tonkin, and so did Ernst Gruning. Huh. And there was there were rumors that the administration was not telling the whole truth, but Johnson ramrodded uh, the resolution through and got his blank check. And that's 1964. Four. Right. Okay. So the incident happened, as you say, in the summer of 1964, and then Johnson comes to Congress, gets the resolution passed, and this is the launching now, uh, the authorization for America to begin the military buildup in Vietnam. Right. And the timing of the incident is useful to the Johnson administration because it precedes the big presidential election later that year in 1964, which Johnson overwhelmingly wins. He does not. That's against Barry Goldwater. That's right? against Barry Goldwater, right? And and Johnson wins big in terms of the popular vote and both the electoral college count. He does not choose to exercise the authority given by the Gulf of Tonkin resolution uh, until late in 1964 and moving into uh, 1965, so, withholding it until after the election results. Well, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, Barry Goldwater's speech, "A Time for Choosing." I mean, Ronald Reagan's speech, yes. "A Time for Choosing," in support of Barry Goldwater in I think it's October of 1964. Um, it's interesting to me to talk about the timing of this in election because one of the things, one of the arguments that Reagan makes against the Democratic ticket, which obviously was Johnson, is um, they're not hard enough on communism. And is is your suggestion here that part of the authorization that he that Johnson gets from Congress is to sort of say, no, 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 look, we're willing to take on those communists? Absolutely. A motive for Johnson in getting the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, getting that authority, is to say, look, we are standing up in Vietnam. We are going to follow through, and we are going to succeed. When he asks Congress for that resolution with a skewed presentation of the events, he also states 
Why are we there? Because we made a promise. We have to keep our word. We're going to stand strong mm. against aggression. These are the lessons we learned from World War II. So if you read the speech, the request Johnson makes, you can see him positioning himself uh, and the Democratic Party uh, as one that will do whatever it takes to prevail in Vietnam. And this is a way to blunt Goldwater's criticisms that the United States is not succeeding in Vietnam. The early stages of the war then, yes. starting in about 1965, what kind of war did the U.S. wage in Vietnam in those years, and why were they fighting it that way? Great question. So at first, the military strategy proceeds from the air through Operation Rolling Thunder, the use of superior American air power to hit North Vietnamese military and industrial targets to degrade its ability to support its own troops as well as the insurgency in the South. The kind of air war we had conducted in World War II against Germany and Japan. Right. And to guard the air bases that are on Vietnamese soil, troops are needed. And that transitions easily into the other half of the military strategy, which becomes known as search and destroy. The basic purpose there, to use American infantry and ground forces to find, identify, and engage communist forces and kill as many as possible, wound as many as possible, so that they cannot continue to, to supply the insurgency mm. uh, and, and their, uh, support their military efforts to bring down the government of South Vietnam. That relies on a metric known as the body count. I mean, if you're going to succeed in this strategy of attrition, you have to be killing a sufficient number uh, of the enemy. Yeah. So that's the basic strategy. That's why we have, starting in mid-1965 through 1968, a massive influx of American combat forces, reaching a peak strength of 543,000 by April uh, of 1969. Wow. So... Take it to, to the just for our listeners to get a sense of the numbers. In 1964, before Gulf of Tonkin, we did have some sort of uh, military advisors and that kind of. What are the numbers in say 64, 65, 66? How quickly do things escalate in terms of the number of American military personnel? Well, you're talking about tens of thousands in 1964. Four, and then you're breaking 100,000 in 1965 and doubling each year to reach that 500,000-plus uh, mark. Wow. Okay. So a very rapid escalation. Yes. Um, what was the progress like? If you're going to escalate that quickly, it would seem like if you're the American people and you're, especially if you're in Congress, you assume the commander-in-chief has a coherent strategy. And they're pursuing, they're, they're escalating because they're carrying out effectively this coherent strategy. Right. So the progress or the measure used is, is a body count. So these are the statistics that get reported. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is that there's intense pressure on American ground forces to report any bodies that they can, or even to make up a body count. Uh -huh. So we have an inflated body count. Um, there was also uh, often the targeting of civilians. Uh, and so Vietnamese civilians, the very people the U.S. is fighting for, are killed and counted as enemy dead. And so we have reliable historical evidence that shows this. Uh, Operation Speedy Express, for example, which declared a very expansive area known as a free fire zone in which American forces and South Vietnamese forces are told any Vietnamese you find in there are considered enemy combatants, even if the intelligence is faulty. And so the Army's own inspector general found that there were thousands of casualties reported, but only um, uh, a small number of weapons. Well, that's interesting to me, that, idea, that, that strategy, because 
um, and that way of measuring the goal, because typically in a war involving territory and geography, you think of, well, are we winning the war? Well, we take a certain territory and hold it and pacify it, not the number of people killed in the territory, but the territory that's held. They didn't adopt that strategy. They did not, and that proved to be a great weakness. And of course, you can imagine how frustrating that is to uh, American forces. What are we fighting for? You know, you're, they're told you have to go in, you have to expel the enemy from this area, um, but then you're going to withdraw, and then more enemy come, uh -huh. and you go back, because what you're trying to do is um, attrit the enemy and kill as many as possible. The other flaw here is that there's a basic demographic problem. Each year around in the second half of the 1960s around 200,000 North Vietnamese are reaching draft age uh, and the tipping point that the United States military calculated was nowhere near enough to overcome that demographic, that number uh, of young people that the North Vietnamese were pressing into military service. Not to mention that the more the United States causes damage to South Vietnam, the more likely it is to create communists, people who will fight for the communists, because right. they don't see uh, an ally, they see someone who's causing a great deal of destruction. So it, with this very, um, the way you're putting it, certainly debatable, if not questionable, um, goal and strategy for achieving that goal. Um, how was the progress or lack thereof being reported to the American people by the Johnson administration? So the Johnson administration, as well as the commander in Vietnam, General William Westmoreland, basically had a message of, we're making steady progress. We're not as close to victory as we would like to be, but we are wearing down the enemy. And in late 1967, Johnson travels to Vietnam as part of a public relations campaign called Operation Success. And that name itself tells us the message. We mm -hmm. are succeeding. The problem then is that in late January 1968, the communists mount their greatest offensive yet. It's both a political and military offensive. And it's called Tet because it occurred on the biggest Vietnamese calendar, uh, the New Year, the Tet. And in that uh, weeks-long offensive, the communists were able to attack more than 125 major targets across South Vietnam. They took the city of Hue, the ancient uh, seat of uh, Vietnamese rule mm -hmm. uh, along the coast um, near the dividing line between the two Vietnams. Hue was retaken, bloody urban fighting carried out by U.S. Marines uh, and um, the forces of South Vietnam. Um, in Saigon, uh, special commandos for the communists uh, it breached the American embassy grounds. They don't take any buildings and they're all killed or captured, but the images broadcast home oh, yeah. cause mm -hmm. lots and lots of Americans, including those who have been largely supportive of this war, to say, as was reputedly said by uh, famed broadcaster Walter Cronkite, what the hell is going on over there? I thought we were winning. Well, the Johnson administration had been saying, we are winning, we're making progress, we're, we're uh, moving towards our goals. Even though Tet is a big military defeat for the communists and they do not succeed in collapsing the regime in South Vietnam, it's a victory for them because now people are asking, what is it going to take to win? If we've done all this and uh -huh, the communists right. can still carry out an offensive, what is it going to take to uh, cause them to surrender? So the Tet Offensive, in many ways, exposed what, what uh, you and other scholars have called the credibility gap. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, and that's, that's, you say, January, late January of 1968. Yes. Um, the, the war continues on, obviously. Johnson decides not to run again in 68. Um, just tell, take our listeners back to that election year of 68. Richard Nixon is the Republican nominee. Yes. What's Nixon's um, campaign? How does he talk about Vietnam? Does he, for example, does he say, I'm going to continue the strategy and the policies of Lyndon Johnson? Does he say we need to go a different direction? Does he say we need to get out of Vietnam? Does he say we need to double down? What's the Nixon approach to Vietnam? Very much like Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1952. Nixon says, if elected, I'm going to end this war, but I'm going to end it on victorious terms, right? Okay. Um, this later becomes known as peace with honor. We will end the war, peace, um, but we will achieve our goals, honor. And so he does promise to begin a drawdown of American forces, mm-hmm. uh, and in their place, more South Vietnamese troops will take up the fight. This is actually a strategy um, which is called Vietnamization, that the Johnson administration begins to unveil, but, but Nixon carries it through. So although the drawdown is slow in 1969 and 1970, by 1972 there are only a few thousand American forces left in Vietnam. Okay. Very few ground operations going forward. At the same time, however, during his first term, Nixon escalates the air war and expands the war into Cambodia in an attempt to target havens used by the communists. They're they're breaching the neutrality of of Cambodia, coming into the south, causing trouble going Mm -hmm. back. And so that's why the war is escalated to Cambodia. The purpose of this partial escalation, while there's a parallel de-escalation, was to try and force the North Vietnamese to give in at the negotiating table. Negotiations have been underway since Johnson was president. You mentioned, Jeff, that Johnson chooses not to run. I mean, this was a a crushing decision for him, uh, a stunning decision. Uh, This was a man who had wanted to be president uh, uh, most of his adult life, and he achieved it, and he won that big landslide in 64. But the only thing that was worse for Johnson in his mind uh, than not being president um, uh, was to lose the presidency, right? He could choose to leave it, and that's, right. that's terrible, but what if he chooses to run and loses in the general election? He didn't want to face that humiliation. Uh, so Nixon tries to do better. He tries to improve upon the negotiations Johnson started. But the basic problem is that the North Vietnamese would not negotiate on their number one, and we might say, you know, number 10 goal. This is really what they were fighting for an independent Vietnam under communist rule. For the U.S. to obtain honor, it needs to leave behind an independent, non-communist South Vietnam. Right. That is unacceptable to the North Vietnamese. Nixon knows this. He's a really smart guy. Henry Kissinger's national security advisor knows this. That's why they bombed. That's why they expanded Cambodia. It's intended to force the North Vietnamese to give in, to say, we can't continue to take a pounding like this, so let's just give in to the Americans at the negotiating table. But the North Vietnamese proved very resilient. They were willing to drag out the talks, endure the bombing, uh, in order to get South Vietnam to such a weak position that by the time the U.S. finally leaves, they will quickly collapse that regime and fulfill their goal of unification under their communist rule. So how did the United States try to negotiate truce terms under that difficult circumstance? Did they, did they end up having to give ground on that? Did they say, no, we'll never give ground on that? What's the end 
um, agreement or truce that comes out of this? The Paris Peace Agreement, which is unveiled in January of 1973, after Nixon wins a tremendous victory in the 1972 uh, Against election. George McGovern. Against George McGovern. I mean, not only um, a, 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 a comfortable, popular vote margin, 49 states. Wow. Yeah, he wins 49 of 50 states in 1972. And uh, in January of 1973, Nixon announces the terms of an agreement. And he says, we have obtained peace with honor. The agreement did state on paper that the integrity or the existence of South Vietnam was guaranteed. But as is always the case in treaties, we have to look for what's not there. Right. What if North Vietnam says, yeah, we signed this, we didn't mean it, we're going to continue fighting? What will happen? Are there are there measures that can be put in place? Mm-hmm. There's nothing uh-huh. to provide for that. And the North Vietnamese knew it. They did agree to release the American prisoners of war they held, um, all of whom have been subjected to barbaric conditions, to torture, some of them for years and years, more than 10 years. They were released, and they came home. Uh, and so Nixon mentions this fine accomplishment uh, as, as part of the treaty. But the basic goal of leaving behind a stable, independent, non-communist South Vietnam is not obtained. And we know that because a little over two years later, South Vietnam collapses. Right. The domestic side of the Vietnam War, uh, I'm just curious, The obviously the pressure is on Johnson in such a way in 68, as you say, amazingly, he chooses not to run again against Nixon. Um, we think the Vietnam era, it's interesting to me you, you reminded us that Nixon won 49 out of 50 states against McGovern. Because in 68, it's the Democrats run Hubert Humphrey, right? Yes. Against Nixon, who is not an anti-war candidate. In 72, they run someone who's thought of as an anti-war candidate who is crushed by Nixon. Yes. It, it, we tend to think of the 60s and the late 60s in the popular culture as everybody was anti-war. And the protests were everywhere, and everyone supported them, and that was the mainstream movement. But the electoral results of 72 suggest, to me at least, that that wasn't true. Yes, and when we look at polls of the public opinion toward the war, it's really interesting that a great many Americans became disillusioned with the war, but that did not make them active or vocal participants in the broad-based anti-war movement. What it meant is they wanted the United States to get out, but get out with a win. And that's what Nixon understands in in 1968. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a third-party candidate in 1968, uh, former governor of um, Alabama, George Wallace, understands this as too. As as one historian has um, uh, nicely put it, Wallace wasn't anti-war so much as he was anti-anti-war. Uh-huh. You know, he, he you know, constantly belittled uh, the stereotypical anti-war protester members of the counterculture hippies, uh, right? But he also criticized the war. I mean, he said, you know, it's, it's time for us to get out because if, we, if we're not, in, or if we're going to stay, we need to just win this thing. If our strategy isn't working, then we'll do what we need to do or, or we need to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's not really what a lot of the anti-war protesters are saying. They're saying this war should never have been fought in the first place. It is a wrongful war. We need to leave whatever the consequences Right. You know, we can't continue to stay and try and get a win. So you really have three positions then. 
1968. Tell us a little bit about, again, on the domestic side, thinking now about the legacy of the Vietnam War and its place in American life. It seems to me one of the legacies is um, a significant divide happens in the Democratic Party, especially in 1968 and on into 72. Talk to us a little bit about that moment in American public life. It is a rupture for the Democratic Party. Up to the late 1960s, the Democratic Party has been consistently hawkish on the Cold War. Um, the major Cold War policies of the United States are the creation of Democratic administrations, particularly the Truman administration, with the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan, the creation of NATO, NSC 68, uh, the Korean War. Um, and Vietnam is consistent with the policies the Democratic presidents and democratically controlled congresses have put forward. It's bipartisan. Uh, they are policies continued by uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower while he's president. But Vietnam ruptures the Democratic Party because it splits doves and hawks. And we see that, you know, in the 68 uh, primaries. Mm -hmm. You know, Humphrey is saddled with war. He's been part of, of the administration that brought it to war. But you have emergent anti-war candidates. And that is a um, almost a permanent feature of the Democratic Party. Uh, moving forward. Uh, Jimmy Carter will be elected in 1976 and he will say Vietnam was morally wrong. Ronald Reagan will highly criticize him and say this was a noble fight. So in, in those two statements and in those two figures, of course, who compete for the presidency in 1980 and Reagan wins, um, we see this divide. And we see the shadow of Vietnam um, cast uh, uh, even further into the future when we look at events like the Iraq War, where a lot of Democratic senators um, vote against force resolution. This is the first Gulf War mm -hmm. uh, during the presidency of George H.W. Bush because they fear another uh, Vietnam quagmire. Uh, and George H.W. Bush will famously say after the success of ousting Iraq from Kuwait with very low casualties for the United States, we finally buried the ghost of Vietnam in, in, in the sands of the Middle East. Uh -huh. uh, so for both Republicans and Democrats, Vietnam becomes a framing event that uh, through which um, almost all foreign policy developments, especially if they involve military force, are viewed. What about a framing event for Americans in how they understand America and um, what America stands for and its place in the world? With regard to Vietnam? Yeah, does, does Vietnam have an effect on sort of people questioning, wait, if our country fought this war in Vietnam, Maybe it's not such a wonderful, exceptional country we've been told, or does it reinforce patriotism, or it, does it divide the country in the same way that it, it, it divides other you know, political parties like the Democratic Party? You know, when we're talking about a, a population and a people as diverse as, as the United States, we have varying responses, right. but we do see some patterns. So for, for a lot of Americans, Vietnam calls into question the ability um, or even the right of the United States to project its power uh, to distant peoples and distant lands uh, in the name of democratization. Mm -hmm. um, is it desirable to do so? Um, should the United States assume that all people want to be like Americans, right? So that's a question of American exceptionalism in, in, in the international uh, realm. Um, but another takeaway for the American people from the Vietnam War is um, a reconsideration of how uh, the men and women who fought it for the United States were treated upon return. And yes. uh, by and large, it was a shabby treatment. And, and, and a lot of their uh, physical and, and mental needs 
uh, that resulted from their war service were, were unattended. Um, you know, there was no parade for, for Vietnam uh, veterans. Um, they returned literally one by one because of the way rotation went in, mm -hmm. uh, the way rotation worked. But I think um, uh, since Vietnam, since the first Gulf War, there's been an understanding that there needs to be a much better recognition of this service yeah. uh, for, yeah. for our, our men and women in uniform. If we have listeners out there who want to know more about the Vietnam War and its legacy in American life, what are some books, what are some authors that you recommend they look into? I think one of the single best books uh, on the Vietnam War is by the historian George Herring, and his last name is spelled just like the fish, H-E-R-R-I-N-G. Uh, and he's got a book that's in, in multiple uh, editions, America's Longest War. Uh -huh. um, which provides the necessary historical context and provides a balanced, evidence-based treatment uh, of the war in its many aspects, mm. including its effects on domestic politics. Fascinating. I find it a very even-handed, highly readable, and mercifully short <laughs> book on the subject. Not bad for a historian, right? Yeah, hard to do for a historian. <laughs> well, thank you, David, for this fascinating conversation. Let me mention again, we're talking with a historian turned novelist, your, your two wonderful books, The Dead Don't Bleed and Rip the Angels from Heaven. Let me recommend those again to our folks who are interested in uh, fiction about war, World War II. But let me again just take a moment to appreciate what you're doing for Ashbrook. Thank you so much for the wonderful teaching that you do uh, of the teachers out there and for this conversation today to help us get uh, some, a more thoughtful, um, nuanced appreciation of the Vietnam War and its impact in American life. David Kruger, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us.